Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final words. Story time. The weekend wander through cricketing history as we delve into the past, distant, recent and possibly invented. I'm Jeff Lemon. The other voice you will hear in just a moment is Adam Collins. It's, uh, it's morning time for me, evening time for him, a slight inversion of our, our routines in the last few weeks before Adam comes back to Australia and we run towards each other in slow motion through a field of flowers to embrace. It's also... a couple of days since we recorded our live interview online with Stuart McGill and a, a large online audience, which everybody seemed to have a lot of fun there. McGill was in very good form and also powerfully frank uh, about every question that we put to him. So uh, as far as interviews go, we could not have asked for anything more. So thanks to him for that. And uh, Adam, it's been a, a lot of final word this week and this is the last bit of final word for the week. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Yeah, big final word a week. And what a great response to the McGill interview. Uh, I've just loved receiving all the messages in our patron DMs over the last 24 hours or so from those that have, who are either there for it or have picked it up and watched it on the patron page since. And of course, you can do that if you are not a patron yet, but become a patron. That'll automatically unlock for you. Um, but yeah, frank and emotional and giving answers that I totally didn't expect. Uh, and also like heaps of fun. The video file that's up there at the moment, you'll see that he's got his old caption when he played you know for Australia and New South Wales and, and all the rest of it and uh, it was just great entertainment and uh, I love the fact that he enjoyed it as well he was tweeting at us yesterday saying how much fun he had and yeah it was just a, a lovely thing to be able to do and, and hopefully um, there'll be opportunities to do more of those Zoom events uh, whether or not we're in COVID conditions or otherwise I, I quite like the idea that now we've kind of all overcome that hurdle when, when it comes to using that piece of technology that into the future there'll be no reason why we can't do more of that. Yeah, the best interviews are always the ones where you, you know, obviously you do your preparation and so on, but where you end up chucking that away about 10 minutes in because <laughs> of the, the kinds of answers that you're getting and the way that they take take you down all sorts of different roads you weren't expecting. We're going to crack on with the central part of story time because uh, I'm heading off in an hour or so for a lot of WBBL. There's uh, eight games over the weekend, so plenty happening there and we've got to do a fair bit of history before then. We do indeed and I should note before we uh, crack on with uh, story time, the main part of the show that at the end we've got another one of our Calling the Shots interviews to roll out so last week you heard Jared Kimber in full well this week the cricket correspondent for the BBC and the um, chief commentator for uh, Test Match Special Jonathan Agnew, we sat down with him through the Zoom screen as well during lockdown, Daniel Norcross and I and that was a, a great chat about the history of Test Match Special not just his story but going all the way back to the start and, and he provided some fantastic insight on that so if you're a radio cricket connoisseur of sorts I'm sure you're going to enjoy that interview which will come to in about 45 minutes if I uh, predict how long our conversation might end up being Jeff. Let us warm up for that then with 
Firstly, a little round of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game that we play with all the people on the Patreon page where they quiz us by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what the cricket number is. So this is how story time works. We do a few new Nerd Pledge numbers that have been on the waiting list to come in. Uh, If yours hasn't come up yet, it will be there soon, I promise you. And then uh, we revisit some of the older numbers from previous weeks that we might not have got right yet and we try to get closer to the truth. The first of our new numbers from today for today, of today, comes through very sequentially from Michael Roberts, and that number is $1.23123. Easy as ABC, it's probably not a Michael Jackson song. But what do you think it might be, Adam? Yeah, it's probably not a Michael Jackson song. It's probably not the Michael Roberts of uh, St Kilda, Channel 7, Boundary Rider, and uh, Sale of the Century, model fame. It's probably not that Mm. Michael Roberts. But where I'll start with this is that, well, Bill Woodfull was the uh, 123rd Australian Test cricketer. Of course, he captained uh, his country 25 times. Book ended with Ashes wins in England in 1930 and 1934 with with body line in between. So a very famous name in Australian cricket, as is Richard Hadley, who was cap one, two, three for New Zealand, picked up 431 test wickets at 22, if you don't mind. And his opening bowling partner for much of that was Ewan Chatfield, who who took 123 wickets. So a few options Ah. there. Very good. Demuth Kuruna who, of course, did he win our Hall of Fame last? I think did he win the World the, Cup the Hall pool of Fame? Party. His, his pool party <laughs> did. Yeah, the, the point in the in the World Cup where Sri Lanka cracked the shits about not having a swimming pool, then got a swimming pool and immediately started winning. So he's one, two, three at Sri Lanka. Uh, Rodney mm-hmm. Hogg took one hundred and twenty-three wickets, and I only mentioned that in passing because he's he's quit Twitter now, and the world is a, a better place as a consequence. Mm-hmm. His his boy took one hell of a beating in the uh, U.S. election last week. Mitchell Johnson made 123 not out. So many options, as did Graham Gooch in oh, the second Oh, that's a great innings. one actually. The, the Mitch Johnson yes. 100. The one, you know, <laughs> in that career, because he's got the 96 not out from the same series, the 92 not out at the MCG, but he'll always have that ton where he just kept playing the hook shot onto the banks at South Africa. Was it at Durban that he made that 100 or Kingsmead? It was in the last test. I don't remember which uh, ground well, Maybe it was, it was Centurion. That, yeah. But I know he brought it up with a six, didn't he? And it, there's great yeah. commentary, which, which when, well, when Mitch retired in 15-16 and we listened to, listened to it back, I think it was uh, Jim Maxwell and Quentin Hull were on that trip and it's really well called by uh, those two. Graham Gooch made 123 in the second innings after his 3-3-3 against India at Lord's in 1990 but I thought after saying all of that one of those might be right for Michael Roberts but I've I've got a bit of a thing going Jeff as you know for one test wonders from England and I wanted just to kick off the show and tick Mm. that box via Walter Mead he was one two three for England Uh, he uh, debuted and played his one test match in 1899 his story is interesting because he played for Essex for sort of 20 years but half of that was before Essex had first class status so he was one of these slow, medium cutter bowlers that uh, we talked mm-hmm. about Sydney Barnes last week. Well, he, he performed a similar role at a similar time as well. He once took 17 wickets against the touring Australians in a non-first-class game back when Essex didn't have that status. But, uh, yeah, it was a tough gig, though. His one test that he did play was at Lords in 1899, and, of course, that's where Victor Trumper um, struck his uh, maiden test 100, 135 not out in a hurry and mm. really announced himself uh, in his second test match. So it was one test and out for Walter Mead, but he did uh, feature for England in 1899 and he was cap one, two, three. 
We really need a name for the sub-segment of the show where Adam goes off on a tangent after some rando uh, sort of <laughs> pre-one-of-the-wars England cricketer who nobody's ever heard of who then turns out to be a, a really interesting story. So, yeah, if you can if you can think of what that segment should be called, drop us a line in the DMs. Uh, thank you, Michael Roberts, one, two, three. If we've got anywhere near that, let us know. Send us a message. Uh, move us in the right direction. Second new number comes in from Mark Martella. The number, very generously, is $21.11, so 21.11, which leads me to think the decimal is significant in this case. Mark says, I share this number with a famous WA cricketer. And I had an immediate thought, Adam, which was almost there, and I was pretty happy with it because it, it didn't quite get there, though. I thought, what was the number that... I thought, wasn't Mitchell Marsh averaging 21 with the bat at the point that he <laughs> left the India tour yes. in 2017 when he did his shoulder and they were writing him up as the worst ever number six batsman to play for Australia, mm. the, the lowest average for someone who'd played more than, you know, two tests or whatever it might be. And he got all of that very awful coverage. And then he went home and, and worked with Scott Muleman, I think, on his batting for six months because he couldn't bowl and then came out in the ashes at the end of that year and made those 200s and had his moment in the sun, you know, had his, his big, his uh, 180 at, at the Wacker and and his subsequent 100 at the SCG. And I thought he was averaging 21 point something at that point. He was 21.74, but it's not quite 21.11. I was also thinking the, the Marsh brothers, when he said famous WA cricketer, I thought mm. it might have been a play on, on Shaw Marsh, but it, it, it didn't quite get to that point. And then I thought bowling averages, DK Lilly, but even if you look at Lilly's um, averages for WA, they were a fraction higher than 21.11. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of thinking... What you know, What's the intersection between 21 and 11? Well, the 21st of November, 21.11 mm. or 21. De- Justin Langer's birthday is the 21st of November. <laughs> on his so, birthday. On his birthday. On his birthday, Justin Langer. <laughs> so uh, he, he that, certainly ticks the box as a, yeah, a famous WA cricketer, uh, Mark Martella. A very uh, fantastic pledge, uh, by the way. And, yeah, I like the clue and I think it works. Yeah, I, I like that. I've, I never really go for... Um for dates of the year that's very much your area so well picked up there and that'll be in a week's time um justin langer's birthday you know i I expect the australian cricket community will all have a big zoom call we'll all (laughs) sing happy birthday to jl we'll all swear allegiance to a sprig of wattle um and then we'll you know we'll we'll go about our day so if that's what you are thinking mark martella a great name as well very satisfying to say mark martella he should be running for office somewhere. Mark Martella, is that correct? Is that uh, also your birthday? And is that a way of you saying to us that we should be singing you happy birthday in a week's time, <laughs> Mark? Uh, let us know if that's the case. 21.11. And thank you for that contribution. We've got a double header coming up next. This is when two people send in the same number, but they probably do it for different reasons. The number is $4.63. 463, 46.3, it could be, it could be 4.63, it could be 463, it could be 463,000. But it comes in from James Philbrook and from Rob, no last name, man of mystery, Rob. Well, I've, I've had the responsibility of delving into this one. Rob sent us a clue and James didn't. So for James, I'm going to say, Adam, that 463 was 
the gap, the target that Australia set England in the centenary test. Mm. Now, we talk about this match quite a lot because we talk about Derek Randall's 173. We talk about the fact that the, the, the margin was the same as the margin when Australia won the very first test match 100 years earlier. We've talked about the, Derek Randall's innings a fair bit, but hadn't talked about that specific. Yeah, that was what they were set. They were set 463 to win. What do you reckon? It's it's strong. I mean, it's it's such a such a. I mean, you go back and watch the highlights, and England are, are well on their way to winning that Test match at, at tea on day five. And the great one of the great stories around the centenary Test is that the Queen scheduled as she was to meet mm. the players at tea on day five. Well, when Australia are all out for a hundred odd on the first day on the first morning, and in England are all out for you know a hundred odd in their first innings. Maybe they were a hundred and thirty odd, uh, something like that. Whatever it was, whatever it worked out to be, there wasn't going to be a day five. And at that mm. point, they're thinking, well, the Queen's not going to be around to meet the players and, and so on. <laughs> but um, thanks to uh, Greg Chapel in the second innings and and uh, and Rod Marsh, of course, and and David Hooks indeed, uh, and of course um, uh, Derek Randall in in, in England's second innings, it made sure that it did push through to the final session of the match the Queen got to do her thing and eventually it was Kerry O'Keefe in that final session that spun Australia to victory before Lily took the final wicket there in that sort of famous posture appealing for leg before and and signalled correctly player of the match and gives a rousing speech in front of the members it's just I mean, I think Greg Baum uh, wrote about all this uh, two or three years ago on the anniversary of the centenary test and said it was just the best week in cricket history. Mm. And David Frith, who, um, who, who turned 40 uh, during that test match, he said it was the best possible way to celebrate his 40th birthday with one of the greatest test matches of all time. <laughs> That's a very nice little bit of extra colour. I can always rely on you for that, Adam. Uh, the second part of this number being James. So James Philbrook will, will get the first, um, the centenary test. Rob sent through a very specific clue that had me doing a fair bit of hard work in the history minds over the last couple of days. Rob noted he was a long-suffering England fan growing up in the 80s and says, when I was finally old enough to bunk off school and watch a test match for the first time, I saw a couple of things which gave me hope at a particularly grim point for England, and that's what my pledge relates to. The interesting thing is not the number itself, but something connected to it, a first in that particular series. The naive teenage hope that I spoke about didn't last very long, and the antagonist in relation to those numbers only got stronger. Now, sometimes we find on Nerd Pledge that the more specific the clue, the more difficult it can be at times, rather than more information making things easier. Once you know you can rule out all of your possible guesses, then it's harder to find the truth. But eventually I had a real kind of little fist pump to myself when I finally tracked this down. So it's got to be to do with the 1980s. It's got to be growing up in the 1980s, which means that it's going... Probably the 85 Ashes win is going to be too early, I was thinking. So it's got to be to do with something bad that happens, which means it's probably 1989 mm. when Australia go over to thrash England in that Ashes series. So the Australians are supposed to be shit, but they've there's a point that I finally tracked this down to. Australia won the first two test matches. Steve Waugh's flying. He's made 177 not out at Leeds, 152 not out at Lords, 21 not out in the second innings. In for the third test for his test debut comes Angus Fraser, the Middlesex bowler, was he, Adam? Yep. So Steve Waugh, 
for the first time in the series, remember this involves a first in the series, said Rob, for the first time in the series, Steve War is dismissed. Hasn't happened before to this point. He's out for 43 to Gus Fraser. Gus Fraser finishes that innings with figures of four for 63. The original nerd <laughs> pledge number was 463. And it doesn't end up helping much because Australia recovered to make more than 400. They draw that game. Steve Waugh makes 92 in the next test to win at Old Trafford and he continues to make England miserable for another 15 years. So on that score, I think I've ticked every box in the clue and I think your 462, Rob, is Angus Fraser's figures in the third test of the 89 Ashes. Fantastic. And again, it's one of those where if Jeff isn't right, just lie to him because he's done so much work there clearly and, and found an answer from... I'm 100% his... confident on that. I reckon I've... T- uh, with yeah. the specificity of the clue, now I've yeah. got it. I reckon, I reckon I've got it. This one's for you, Adam, from Nick O'Connell. A, a very generous contribution. Thank you, Nick. $12.18. 12.18. What does 1218 suggest to you yeah this didn't take long for me because it's in my files somewhere and i just quickly looked through and and found (laughs) out because we talked about it quite a lot last year jason gillespie made uh, 1218 test runs it's about oh good it's i guess it's a a year this week since we had dizzy on final word live in adelaide which was such a great night i was talking to our great friend uh, matt clemo about that today and we we couldn't believe that a a year has passed and so much has happened in in some respects so little has happened i suppose during shutdown and lockdown and and all the rest but in any case um, Gillespie having made 1200 test runs or 1218 test runs to be precise the reason it's interesting is well yes we all know he finishes with a double tonner and we'll come to that but if you go back to 2002 and 2003, so well into his test career, which of course uh, began all the mm. way back in, in 1996, 96. he's averaging 12 or 13 with the bat, like real legitimate right. number 10, number 11 stuff. Like he would have been the number 11 if not for the fact that Glenn McGrath was the number 11. But then in 2004, yep. like everything starts to change. He he bats with Damian Martin in his 56 test this is, bats with Damian Martin for like a session and a half and makes 26 as Night Watchman, a really crucial innings that uh, helped Australia at a, at a really important part of that series. That, that test is ruined at Chennai, but uh, it gets Australia out of a, a significant hole. He carries that confidence into the next summer. Of course, there's the half century mm-hmm. where he uh, rides the bat like a horse with Glenn McGrath, they put on 114 against New Zealand. He faced 155 balls for that as well, I should add, though. He wasn't sort of going the tonk. He, mm. he, by that stage, he was able to bat for a long stretch of time. He did so again later that summer against Pakistan, making an unbeaten 52 in 152 minutes. And then you press fast forward to 2006, his 71st and final uh, test match, getting back into the side, um, having uh, been dropped during the 2005 Ashes. But he gets back after a huge Shield season for SA and, of course, on his birthday, uh, makes 201 not out in 574 minutes, 425 deliveries, a 320-run stand with Mike Hussey along the way, the highest score ever for a night watchman, the highest score ever for a player to finish their test career the only test batsman to have a double century but their test average to end at under 20 and mm. uh, so I'm, I'm certain that's the number uh, that, that Nick O'Connell has sent to us a little postscript there on, on Dizzy's batting as well 
in the twilight of his career. So when he stopped playing for Australia, he went on to make two more first class tons. So one for South Australia. I remember one of them. Yeah, yeah, one hundred and eighteen. Remember watching one on TV? I reckon. Or no, maybe it was a List A game. He made, maybe he made one in a List A as well. But yeah, right. like that, that one late in his career for South Australia. Right? Yeah, yeah. He put it on two hundred and fifty with Graham Manua, made one hundred and eighteen not out. And then for Yorkshire, who he was a champion uh, bowler at Yorkshire. But well, yeah, also an unbeaten one, two, three. So a lot of these innings are unbeaten uh, where where he where he comes in late on. But he adds two hundred and forty six with Tim Bresnan, which uh, was a club record, I think, for the tenth wicket. So yeah, it wasn't just the two hundred one. It was this. Uh, upward curve he went on from Chennai in 2004 which as I say got Australia out of strife when he first became that standard night watchman role which he carried through and made a number of half centuries the double ton and a couple more at the back of his first class career so I reckon that is where Nick O'Connell was for 12-18 and uh, interestingly that one two three takes us back to Michael Roberts our first nerd yes. pledger for today who may have been pledging about Jason Gillespie's he could easily for your doing exactly that could easily yes. <laughs> it's, 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 Occam's razor suggests it's entirely plausible um, so let us know Nick O'Connell thank you for your number Niall Duxbury I reckon we had Niall Duxbury a couple of weeks ago he must have had a quick number change we, we had him we had him last career. week did, did we not was did we? Niall I think Niall Duxbury last week was 5 for 65 which hmm. I thought it was Jimmy oh, yeah. with the Burnley connection, but it was Sid Barnes. So we've got Niall. Um, well, he must we, have put we in- corrected it last week, so that must have come in a, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. So Niall Duxbury's about three weeks running on, on story time in He's that case. He's done well. So He's done well. Value for pledge. And uh, the changed pledge from Niall that he must have changed soon after putting his first one in is $4.82. Uh, what might four eight two suggest to you, Adam? Oh, I didn't have a lot on this, I must say. Um, Pakistan made 482 against Australia at Dubai, at Dubai Sports City in 2018. Keep your eyes open for a bargain. <laughs> Sports City. That takes us right so, back to the white saw, line wireless days, that does. If I saw someone on the internet um, a couple of days ago talking about uh, the new comedy series Auntie Donna's House. House of Fun, yes. and, which is on Netflix, and saying that they were really pumped that there was a Car City Ringwood reference, and they're like, I'm so glad that this massive audience in America is getting exposed <laughs> to a Car City Ringwood <laughs> reference that they totally won't understand. And and, and I had this moment of, of, of sort of personal peace of feeling like, you know, White Line Wireless and Auntie Donna <laughs> Venn diagram overlap <laughs> together at last. We both had many Car City Ringwood jokes. I'm looking forward to that. I watched the first six minutes of that before reflectively going back to this Scandi drama I've got on with Rach at the moment. She's like, let's go back to our Scandi drama and we'll, we'll have the funny Australian stuff maybe next week. But um, uh, the 482 mm. at Dubai Sports City, that's where Australia responded by losing 10 for 60. You might recall, Jeff, when we were. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, of, of all the Australian collapses and we've seen a few that Ooh. had it all didn't it it was the the, the duck for head and labashane in the space of four balls on debut mm-hmm. it was the marsh brothers falling in the space of five minutes of each other it was the mm-hmm. great start from kawaja and finch all going mm-hmm. to pot and of course it did set the scene for usman kawaja's epic in the second dig but yes pakistan courtesy of muhammad hafiz and Harris Sohail, if I recall correctly, are both making centuries. Maybe a such a feature. Har- well. Harris Sohail in the second innings. Second Hafiz, innings. Right. Hafiz and Imam Al Haq, the yes. openers, put on 205 for the first wicket, I can tell you off the top of my head. <laughs> and they were three down by the end of the day. Uh, and then, yeah, then there was 
80 odd from Asad Shafiq and 100 from Harris Isle on the second day. So, yeah, that Muhammad Hafiz ton was a gem coming back into the side after two years out and just belting it. I just remember it because I did the little boundary line interview after player. Mm. Just he's, he was beaming and he just goes, I love test cricket. I love <laughs> test cricket. You know, like all I wanted to do was get back and play test cricket. And it was it was a really nice moment. So that's a decent shout. I like that because that has a strong final word connection, the 482. I was looking for maybe a Lancashire link because Niall's previous pledge involved Burnley Cricket Club and Sid Barnes and the faking us out with Jimmy Anderson and so on. I did note that uh, 482, Nicole Bolton, the Australian batter, former Australian player, made 482 runs in the third edition of the Big Bash, which got her signed by the Lancashire Thunder for the following uh, Kia Super League. So that might be might be too tangential, but nothing is too tangential. But in the end, I've just gone for quality of number. So I'm going for the 4 for 82 that Brett Lee took at Edgebaston 05, which sometimes gets a little bit forgotten because we talk about England batting on the first day, making 400 and whatever, being sent in by Ponting and so on. Brett Lee gets smashed around, takes one for 111, and the one wicket I think is... Peterson hooking him and getting caught on the boundary perhaps when he's already made a shitload of runs so you know it's it, it hasn't gone well for him Australia trailed by 99 on the first innings then Shane Warne bowls Andrew Strauss last over of the day with that that big turning leg break that mm. goes around his front pad and the next morning is when Brett Lee comes out and gets Triscothic caught at slip smashes through Michael Vaughan with a beauty and then gets the night watchman Hoggard caught in the gully and later picks up Geraint Jones. They they roll England for 182 and set up that crazy finish. So all of that really is down to Brett Lee knocking the top off the innings uh, and he ends up with four for 82 in that innings. He took the same figures a couple of other times in test matches, but that's the, the most memorable four for 82. Yeah, I think from memory, Lee took 20 wickets at 40 in that series. I hope I'm doing him justice there. And I've always kind of argued that it, it could have been it could have been so different for him. There, there are a number of spells in the 05 Ashes where mm. he looked like he was about to really roll through England, but you're spot on in identifying that if not for Lee's spell on, I think that's the third morning or maybe the fourth morning, mm. probably the third morning, there's no way that comeback happens. So, yeah, it, it's an important inflection point in what turned out to be, well, look, we already talked about the centenary test being one of the greatest test matches of all time on, on story time about 10 minutes ago. Well, you know, Edge Baston 05 is right there with it. Thank you, Niall. New number, a double header from Robert Dinsbury and Keith Williams. The number is $5.60560. Is that tingling anything in your ganglia, Adam? Mm, nothing that's particularly persuasive. Bangladesh made 560 for six against Zimbabwe earlier this year, and I just thought it was worth noting that's the last time Bangladesh have played certainly mm. you know in terms of test cricket the Australia tour needed to be cancelled for obvious COVID reasons but yeah I, I just thought I'd make a point that I wonder when the next time we see Bangladesh play a test match will be yep. hopefully not too long but I, I fear it might be uh, Mushfika the great uh, Bangladeshi captain made an unbeaten 203 in that innings and the other 560 I had I went back to the 1899 Ashes again which I've been Returning to quite a bit recently, so much happened there, but Hugh Trumbull, who was uh, the Australian finger spinner, uh, picked up five for 60 from 39.3 overs at Leeds. It still turned out to be a draw, though. It was this that, that era of English test cricket where, because it was three-day tests, I mean, 
there are so many draws. It's so painful to look at the scorecards. In this case, mm. England should have won. They're only chasing about 120-odd. Uh, but at the close of play on the third day, they're like 15 for none. I mean, they would have they would have won. But um, mm. but still, in the first dig, it was Hugh Trumbull who was in the wickets with five for 60. Yeah, but Bangladesh not playing. Um, Shakib Al-Hassan could not have picked a better time yes. to get suspended for um, failing to report an approach from a bookmaker. It, it does make me wonder with that, it, like... If an Australian player got banned for a year for some sort of shifty contact with a bookmaker, you know, there'd be... I'm just looking at this from the point of view of personal bias, you know. I'm sure you and I would be all over them being like, boo, this sucks, you know, disgrace, etc. Shakib does it and I'm sort of like, oh, naughty boy, don't do it again, you know, but I don't, I don't feel any sort of dismay at it. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like... Uh, Am I completely backwards in how I'm looking at this? Probably. I mean, it's probably very inconsistent. Might it sort of steer it? <laughs> Look, this is this is a this is a patronising comment. It, it probably won't line up with all the money that Shakib has made um, through domestic T20 comps. But I was going to say that historically, when Pakistani players have got themselves in trouble, they've not been given a leave pass. But the counter views mm. or the counter point that often is made is, well, they're making subtle money. Uh, thus, they are more susceptible to these advances to, compared to players from countries where there is a greater degree of professionalism as far as the money they're able to make. But, yeah, with Shakib, that, that may not quite line up because, well, he's been yeah. an IPL player for 12 years. Well, yeah, and, and I think, that, you know, there's the specificities of the case where, in, in his case, he's not thought to have actually taken money from anyone. It's just that he was no. being sent text messages that he didn't report um, but wasn't acting on, you know, was they were solicitations to get in contact with someone rather than anything more concrete. But yeah, it's it's interesting how how different the shrug of the shoulders is. You know, the, I mean, Sri Lanka getting caught ball tampering about a month after the Australians got caught ball tampering, yeah. and nobody cared. They were like, oh well, you know, so be it. Anyway, uh, the number, the number five sixty. All right. I had I had a, a fun little exploration on this. So right. we're going to say, why don't we say that? Um, let's give at this at this stage we're going to say Robert Dinsbury is the Bangladesh super fan, loves them, loves the Tigers, always up up for Tiger time. Their last their last match. Keith Williams, however, very big fan of early Indian Test cricket. So here's here's a nice little confluence for you, Rusatomji Modi. Uh, played a few tests, played 10 tests for India starting in 1946 through to 1952. He was a, a lean, skinny sort of top-order batsman who had a massive Ranji trophy career early on. He was the first player to make a 1,000 runs in a Ranji season. At one point, he made five consecutive tonnes in Ranji trophy cricket. So he debuts in '46. And then a couple of years later, Palan Umragar, who's always known as Polly, Polly Umragar, uh, debuts in 1948. So, and he's, he's the opposite physically. He's a big, chunky, you know, thick boy, all-rounder, who bats a bit down the order. But he goes on to become Indian captain. He plays 59 tests, which is the Indian record for quite some years after that, I think, until Gavaska comes along. He makes 1,200s, which is the Indian record as well. And he's one of the very rare few players for India who has a ton and a fifer in the same match. So it's the list is purely Vinu Mankad, Polly Umraga, and then decades pass where it doesn't happen until Ravi Ashwin does it a couple of times in more recent years. So the entire list is 
the originator of the Mancad, the patron saint of the Mancad, and <laughs> Polyam Regar in the middle for India, which is really nice. But what brings them together, I mean, they, you know, their careers do overlap, but what brings them together is that when the West Indies visit India in 1948-49, Rusatomji Modi makes 560 runs in the series against them, including his only Test 100. And that's a record in terms of series runs for India that stands for decades afterwards. But the reason it stands for decades afterwards is because five years later, when India are over in the Caribbean, Polly Amragar makes 560 runs in a series against the West Indies. He nice. draws exactly level and then gets out for 13 in his final innings uh, and finishes completely level. So those two share that record until the 70s, I think. Palan Omragar and Rusatomji Modi share this record of 560 runs in a series being the most in a series for India. And that is very definitely what Keith Williams was going for. And if Keith Williams wasn't going for that, uh, he can hop in the DMs and steer us towards his correct number. Well, I, I like the idea of the meat and the man-cad sandwich. That's good enough for me for mm. 560. So thank you, Robert Dinsbury, and thank you, Keith Williams. That's the end of our new numbers. But, Jeff, we have had a lot of work sent our way on revisits where we haven't quite... Um, stuck the landing in previous weeks and as always uh, if yep. you're one of our new numbers and we haven't got that right just let us know i mean it is so good uh, I, I can't stress this enough it is so much fun the dms at the moment where people are coming at us and going no you got this wrong have another go here's a clue and they're editing their numbers as we play as well so which means story time will continue for a long time into the future too so yes any of the numbers we've dealt with then if we've got them wrong come back at us so if you want to send us a new number, patron.com slash the final word. It's very easy and self-explanatory. You can set your rate, set your maximums and set how long you want to be there for. All up to you. The revisits. This one from Patch Clap, the real Patch Clap, not the fake Patch Clap. Uh, regarding his 306 that we looked at some months ago, Patch says, I know this is stretching the no statute of limitations for nerd pledge numbers, <laughs> but having enjoyed our original ponderings about Carlos Brathwaite and Sri Lanka's twin scores, they were not on the money. Patch Funny is that. an Aussie who spends plenty of time away from the TV <laughs> <laughs> during the home summer and opts for experiencing cricket orally from people who discuss the game rather than pizza toppings. So, he says it links to a final word favourite, which means it's got to be to do with radio commentary. And it was almost, it's almost Jim Maxwell because he's commentated over 300 test matches. But my mental count, because I like to keep tabs of these things, suggests that Jim is up to 314 tests by now, not 306. So anything better than that, Adam? Yeah, his 300th was in South Africa during the uh, the sandpaper debacle, wasn't it? Oh, I, no, I think it was the bo his 300th was Boxing Day against India, um, if I Oh, right. Call yeah, yeah, correctly. no, you're right. Yeah, I knew that he was nearing on 300. Sorry, that's right. It, we, it was his, we his 45th year anniversary was in South Africa Got when it. we were over there. That Got was it. his 45 years on air the um well first of all uh, my no statute of limitations uh which i mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago the reference there is that if we had your nerd pledge on the show a year ago it's still cool and we got it wrong then you're permitted to tell us that and, and, we'll, and we will come back to it on story time so patches um taken <laughs> imagine, up imagine imagine if we do this show for long enough that we can do like a nerd pledge cold case you know where we go back 24 years to exhume a file where we go down into the storeroom blow the dust off the top of a box look through the files and say whoever did this forensics report it was amateur 
I'd relish that opportunity. Well, look, I, I know what this is uh, because I reckon I was looking at 306 the other day for Nerd Pledge and I can't remember why, but it was easy to stitch together because Simon Kadich made 306 for New South Wales against Queensland early in the 2007-2008 uh, campaign mm-hmm. where he was coming back with aggression. He went on to make 1,506 runs at 94 uh, in that season. So that's the most runs anyone's ever made in a Shield campaign. He overtook Michael Bevan's 1,464 from 2004-05, and that got him back into the Test team. And I, and I assume what Patch is referring to there. Final word favourite, of course, I, I work with Cat on SCM, where he's an excellent radio summariser, and looking forward to doing so again this summer. And it all it all comes together quite neatly. So 306 Patch Clap, Simon Cadditch, I reckon we got you. Yeah, and he started off on the ABC, of course, with Jim Maxwell in that 2015-16 yes. series. That was that was when Simon Kadich got into radio and um, won fondness for being a very straight talker most of the time. So that's the revisit from Patch. Michael Fallon wanted us to revisit his 216, which he was <laughs> obliquely hinting had to do with Yassir Shah at the Adelaide Oval in a test match where Yassir made a ton. He said it related to shit subcontinental batters and hundreds. <laughs> and cap numbers, which uh, which made it pretty easy in the end. Ajita Gurkha was the 216th man to play test cricket for India. Uh, another not-so-accomplished uh, batsman to get to 100. Now, on this... I didn't realise just how shit Ajit Agurka was with the bat. I mean, of course, I remember the five consecutive ducks in the summer of 99, 2000, mm-hmm. four first ballers, then, we, then a which second ended up being It ended up being seven against Australia yes. because he made a pair in Mumbai as well, I think. So he ended up with seven in a row. Yeah, that's right. Seven in a row and five in a series. It was quite something. But after that, when that sort of horrible interrogation was over, in 2002, he goes on to make an unbeaten 109 at Lords in a test match, which means he only passed 50 once in, in test cricket, and that was the only time he did it at Lords in a mm. test match where he uh, went on to go on the honour board. And, and the reason I, I mentioned the honour board, which I, between us, I think the honour board's a bit fucking ridiculous, really. I mean, there's honour boards everywhere. Why do they make such a big deal of it at Lords? I do not know. But Robbie McIntyre. But don't you know it's more important than everything? It's England. The rich people are more important than but there, poor but there's, people. Li- but there's literally a, 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 an honour. I mean, at every England ground I've been to, they have the same thing. But for whatever reason, the Lords Honour Board has got this mystique around it. And our patron, Robbie McIntyre, dropped me an email during the week to send me a song that he has written and sung called The Honour Board at Lords. I've asked him to send me a link, which I believe he's done overnight, and I'll post it out um, on Twitter because I, I really took to it. It's my kind of music. So there's a yeah a link between uh, Patch Clap, Ajit Agurka, The Honours Board at Lords, and Robbie McIntyre. Mm. So nice, well, nice week for it. Robbie, if, if Ajit Agurka is not in the song, I'll be very disappointed, um, <laughs> part one. And, and part two, I mean, Ajit Agurka could bat. That was the thing. I remember watching him make 70-odd in a one-dayer at the MCG, and yep. he was a really attractive player when, when he, you know, strong through the offside and, like, actually looked like a decent bat. He just seemed to panic when he got into test cricket during that period. So, uh, But he did he did make 100, and I think it, it wouldn't be entirely unfair to class him as a shit subcontinental banner. Yeah, I think that's right, Jeff. And before we move on, I, I, I incorrectly identified 216 as Patch Clap, of course. It was Michael Fallon. So thank you for uh, getting back in touch. I'm glad we were able to solve that. Adam, Will, Michael... Fall on your mercy. Oh, <laughs> my 
good. Okay, James Ryan, revisit. Uh, the number was 633. I was talking about Shane Watson's best test bowling because, of course, I was. Uh, James says, that's not right. Hint, I believe the person in question has a descendant on the Western Bulldogs AFL football club, close brackets, list. At least he played in the 2020 AFL season, I think, though his surname may not be shared. Second hint, he took more wickets than he scored runs, and a fair sample size makes this more impressive or less impressive, I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, What did you make of this clue and this follow-up, Adam? I know you were working on this. Yeah, I had lots of fun with this because I... uh went off on the wrong tangent to begin with and, and found a way back to where I needed to be, which was quite rewarding, uh, as often it is with story time clues. Um, I first, my first thought was Alex Keith, who, former Victorian cricketer, did play for the Western Bulldogs in 2020, but I couldn't find any descendant. It just didn't kind of line up. And look, maybe there is one and, I, and I've stuffed it up, but there was a third clue as well, which was kind of an if need break glass clue, which was the initials were BB. Uh, and then again, I was looking at all these BBs and thinking about Australian cricketers with the initials BB. Bill Brown, well, it's not going to be him. Of course, he was a batsman, not a bowler. Ben Barnett uh, played four test matches at a wicket, as a wicketkeeper batsman. So the wickets column wasn't relevant for him either. And then I kind of realised I was being too narrow. Does it have to be an Australian? And then I realised Bill Bowes, of course, Bill Bowes, the accurate sort of workhorse seamer for England who uh, played between 1932 and 1946. He played 15 test matches, 68 wickets at 22, very useful, uh, but just 28 runs at an average of 4.66 and a high score of an unbeaten 10. The same applied in Hmm. first-class cricket, by the way. He took 1,639 wickets and only made 1,531 runs across 372 matches with a high score of 43. But then in terms of the the link back, well, first of all, Bill Bowes, he he was a great Yorkshireman. Uh, He kind of ran the show with Hedley Verity before the war. They won the county championship together on eight occasions. He's most known for his body line cameo, though. Well, I, I say most known. He's known for that sort of body of work for England and for Yorkshire. But as far as body line's concerned, he only played in one test match at the MCG, the second of the series. But he bowled Bradman first ball uh, of the first innings for a golden duck. We probably think of the Melbourne body line test and Bradman's unbeaten 102 in the second innings or Tiger O'Reilly's 10-wicket match and Australia winning there. But um, Bose did um, skittle Bradman uh, for a duck, which is documented in the, uh, in the body line miniseries, which I'm sure that hmm. uh, a lot of people who are listening to Stories Time would have watched at some point. I actually wrote a, a university essay. Uh, the mon- uh, I, I did a unit, uh, this is like classic Monash art stuff, uh, a film studies unit. It might have even been called Australian Film, and my mm-hmm. and the academic allowed me to write my major essay for that unit about the Bodyline miniseries with Gary Sweet playing Bradman <laughs> and Hugo Weaving uh, playing Jardine. Anyway, I digress. Agent Smith playing Jardine. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I fully argue that Hugo Weaving's performance as Agent Smith in The Matrix derived purely from the work he did as Jardine <laughs> in the Bodyline series. That's right. I've done quite a bit of... At the time, I remember going back through all the old newspapers, and Bill O'Reilly was furious about the way that bits and pieces were depicted but 
anyway, moving forward, uh, Bose also was caught up in the war. He was one of the 30,000 militarymen um, captured at Tobruk. Uh, he was a POW for three years before coming back and made it back to the England team to his credit in 1946, but wasn't the same cricketer and he retired shortly thereafter. He ended up being quite an influential coach and mentor of Fred Truman as he was starting his international career mm-hmm. via Yorkshire. And he ended up becoming the cricket correspondent for the Yorkshire Post. So he got into the media side of the game as well and was a, an illustrious cricket writer. But that link back to the AFL, Jack Bowes. Jack Bowes plays for the Gold Coast Suns. Not the Dogs, that bit was wrong. That's where I was misdirected. But since 2017, Jack Bowes, who is the great nephew of Bill, has been on... Hmm. Been on, he'd been playing at the Gabba, a ground that was, of course, uh, one of those used during during body line, and uh, and been uh, playing in the AFL. So that that must be what uh, was being referred to there, uh, off the top by James Ryan, and that surely is it for six thirty three. There we go. Uh, I really like the, um, you know, we talk about players who come back from a knee reconstruction or something and we go, oh, how, how heroic that they've come back to international cricket. Oh, I spent three years as a POW and then got back to playing, you know, top quality professional cricket. Yeah, no drama. I should say when I say, and that's why it's 6.33, because Bill Bowe's best figures in test cricket were 6 for 33. I missed out on that bit, but that was oh, okay. uh, that was captured within. I, I thought I should just clear that off in case we uh, get a, a message out asking why that all relates through, but I promise you it does. I see. All right. That is 6.33. Uh, Cameron Allen's revisit to 21. We were talking about a tie between Ireland and Zimbabwe. Uh, Cameron said it is about associate cricket, but it's about an associate match more recent than 2007. The match wasn't an ODI, but it is related to ODI cricket. And he says that, Adam, there is a small link to cricket in the ACT, but more mm. so for me than for you. Now, I don't know what that means, but okay. small link to cricket in the ACT. Okay, so just picture me flexing my fingers at this point, cracking my <laughs> knuckles. So wasn't an ODI but relates to an ODI cricket. A tournament which involved matches that were not ODIs but related to ODI cricket was the 2018 World Cup qualifier where teams played off to get into the World Cup. Some of those games were ODIs and some were not by the weird sort of form that the ICC has where some players, some teams are ODI teams and others aren't. So some of the matches in that tournament were and some weren't. The opening match in that tournament was between the United Arab Emirates and Papua New Guinea, UAE versus PNG. The Emirates won after making a score of 221, which is our nerd pledge number. That was the first game in charge of the Papua New Guinea team as coach for former Australian player Joe Dawes, Queensland bowler, who later coached PNG to the T20 World Cup, which they haven't got to appear in yet because it got postponed. So, 221 relating to an ODI in a tournament where non-ODIs were also played... For a small link to Canberra, Joe Dawes played in the PM's 11 game in 2003 when a young Mitchell Johnson did not appear and so a different Queensland bowler appeared in a a team that featured several Queensland players. Is that enough? Small link to Canberra, ODIs and non-ODIs coming together in relation to ODIs, 221, PNG, 
does it click together? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I don't know whether Joe Dawes may have played some cricket in Canberra as well. It's possible. He could have played club cricket there. I um, don't think so. I, I did a fair bit of digging and okay. couldn't because he was pretty much Queensland through and through, but he did come down for that PM's 11 game uh, do. In, in 03. They all count. And, and, and if there is a different Canberra link, Cameron, please let me know. I'd, I'd be very interested mm. in hearing that. All right, next up, $1.17. One, uh, might be pound seventeen as we talked about last week on Storytime. One can, euro, sure. One euro, because. 17. You can, oh, yes, it would be for, for the History of Netherlands podcast. I cannot wait to meet them next year for England's uh, one-day series in in Amsterdam the same week as the Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam. Um, their clue uh, was that it had to do with, I think, from memory, twin tons or something like that. Jeff was talking about mm-hmm. Rowan Canai was also talking about the Adelaide Test match uh, during Calypso Summer 6061. So they've replied, whilst they appreciated hearing about the dramatic last wicket stand featuring Slasher Mackay, I'm afraid that we weren't right. Uh, they're not sure how much of a clue they should give us, but it involves one of our favourite cricketers in a match or series filled with best and worst records. And if we can't get that, they say, it's just not cricket. Jeff, uh, this was too much for me. You're better on the cryptic stuff. Over to you. Well, look, off the top, can I suggest two different UAE versus Papua New Guinea games in the same show. Is, is that allowed? Because, because we might be the one, apart from the Emerging Cricket Podcast with Tim Cutler, we might be the only other podcast that, that, that you can get away with that. Okay, so the year before the qualifier coached by Joe Dawes that we just mentioned, those two same teams played a T20 in which we were talking about players who've been suspended for a uh, dodgy contact with bookies in which the their dodgy wonder bat Shaiman Anwar one of my favorite players um, while while he was in the non-suspended format I've got to maybe reassess that since made 117 from 68 balls and won the game I know that's not it but I just needed to to note that given we've just spoken about UAE v PNG and the uh, the big rivalry the grudge match between those two teams so I haven't – this History of Netherlands podcast clue is – it's doing my head in a bit because they're saying it involved twin tons initially. That's, that's what I'm taking away from the clues that we got. But nobody who made twin tons, including a score of 117, would be classed as a final word favourite player. It's never happened in the women's game. There are four scores of 117 in women's test cricket, but never in a, in a twin-ton situation. You know who did make 117, though? Polly Umrigar, the former Indian <laughs> captain we were talking about earlier. In the same during series? The, during the series in which he made the 560 uh, runs to equal the record. Delightful. He made a score of 117 against the West Indies and, in fact, went on to make another 117 in another test against Pakistan later in his career. Uh, and the other thing that I'll note is that in terms of twin-ton players who are final word favourites, Ian Chappell famously did that in a test with his brother Greg mm. where they both made twin-tons uh, in the same test match, neither of which was 117, but they did both separately make scores of 117 elsewhere in their career. But up until this point, as far as all of the clues go, there is nothing that comes together to form 
a, a complete picture. And so I know the Netherlands crew think that this is a laydown misere, but uh, the, the clues, so many clues have made it more complicated and I'm going to have to throw it back to them another time. Yeah, we'll throw it back to them. We'll throw it back to our uh, dependable core of uh, DMers as well. If, if you know what 117 is based on the available information, go right ahead. Jeff, and that also applies to six. 06, so David WFG. We were looking at Dennis Lindsay's 606 runs in a series. So he was a South African wicketkeeper. That was a record score. Well, I say a record score. It was the most amount of runs made by a wicketkeeper in a series, which felt right based on the clue, which originally was a tribute to a legend of the game from an unorthodox background. David came back to us and said, it was a thrill last weekend to be listening to the podcast in the car for the first longest drive in the longest time to see my folks with the family on board, to hear you start suddenly riffing about DWFG and how much it's like the BFG. Amazing. So this appears to have stumped you both and made me question whether I know my cricket, but I do. And so as a clue, the source for this stat has been used once previously and the unorthodox background shares something in common with you both. Jeff, I haven't got a Scooby. (laughs) Yeah, this is, look, I've spent some time on this and I haven't got there and I will come back to it next weekend, David WFG. What fucking guns? That's what they say <laughs> when, when he gets them out. But if, if anyone has a better idea in the meantime, sling it our way. I, I'm taking this to mean that maybe this cricketer started off as a journalist, but there are, I mean, that doesn't really work because... I mean, there are, there are cricketers who become journalists, but not so much going the other way around. Anyway, I will continue to work on it, David. A revisit for Jesse G, the 237 that we were looking at, Martin Guptill in the World Cup from 2015. Uh, Jesse says, that is not it, but the key here is that you need to throw a decimal into the number and you would also do well to appreciate the point where aesthetics and achievement meet to produce greatness. He also says it's not Alfred Shaw, who we mentioned as well, who played in the very first test match, uh, but Jesse said, man, that was a good rabbit hole to go down, if only for the legendary photo of him on his wiki page. Yeah, I went back to that and had a look myself. It's, uh, well, he was a, he was a large man uh, in this. Uh, look, you've got to look at it yourself. He's wearing a bow tie and he's wearing a piece of fabric as a belt, which is kind of sitting high up between, I suppose, his chest and where his stomach should end, but it's very high up. It's not, it's not that attractive. I suppose the fashion was of the time, but, um, yeah, well, it's not our shore, so we can push on from him. Uh, Sid Barnes, I, I mean, I didn't get very far here, really. Sid Barnes' economy rate in Test cricket was 2.37, uh, although I'm not sure he meets the aesthetic bit here jeff he wasn't sort of known to be he was a stylist but he isn't a bowler that people talk about as being beautiful at the crease or anything like that no but i'm going to go instead with the decimal point elsewhere because 23.7 is the test bowling average of one michael holding Uh, assuming we we round up from 23.68 and he was one of the most aesthetic of all and did meet that with achievement to produce greatness. So that's where I'm going for Jesse G, who I know is a a recent convert to the game and um, probably would have enjoyed some of the footage of Michael Holding bowling during the last England summer where they had quite a bit of replays. Richard Turney's 205. We were talking about Azhar Ali making 205 at the MCG. Richard says he grew up in the UK in the 1990s. That's the steer. Where'd you go, Adam? Well, the original clue was that 205 was the fourth most important number 
in a test match, and now we know it's from the 90s. And really, again, I, I've, I've, I've uh, fumbled through a little bit here. The best I can come up with is in 1994 at Leeds, England beat South Africa, which is a considerable achievement at the time, um, where Devon Malcolm famously uh, takes nine for 57 to blow up South Africa in a couple of sessions. And that's another part of the original Richard Turney clue. It was where two sessions of cricket sort of captivated him and got him sucked mm. in. So I thought maybe Devon Malcolm's nine for 57 because in that match, England chased down the 205 they are set to win uh, for that come from behind victory. So, I mean, if there's nine for 57, they're two quite prominent numbers. I'm not sure what the third number would be, but in that sequence, 205 might be the fourth, and thus it might be uh, when Devon Malcolm had his day out uh, at Leeds at Headingley in 94. So let us know on that one. Richard, Sean McGivens, 194, which he said also related to the number 195 with a double connection. Uh, Sean said, thanks for giving it a good crack. I especially enjoyed the first attempt, which, while not correct, had you in pretty adjacent areas with Cyril Washbrook. <laughs> now, Cyril Washbrook was a, an England test opener in the 1940s, and so if that implies other England test openers, Washbrook and Vaughan were both test openers who made 195 for England. Triscothic and Herbert Sutcliffe both made 194s. Alistair Cook made a 294, but none of that's quite clicking. Uh, but we got some correspondence through from Eamon Huck, who has got a good snare here, which suggests that it might be to do with the number we mentioned on the show some months ago when we were talking about Syed Anwar scoring 194 in ODI cricket and how that stood as the record for a long time. And then there was a moment when the uh, little heralded Zimbabwe batsman Charles Coventry had a chance to break that record by going to 195 and was not able to do it and ended up equaling it with 194. You know, there's some cricketers that you know very little about other than one thing. Well, Charles Coventry falls into that category for me. I know nothing about him, and I learnt that there's probably good reason for that. This was by far the achievement of his career, making an unbeaten 194 um, for Zimbabwe uh, back in 2009. In a losing side, I should add, <laughs> Bulawayo. Bangladesh chased it down uh, pretty comfortably in the end after the Tammy Mikbal made uh, 154. But the reason we know it must be Charles Coventry's 194 is that the original clue was that it rolled Rhymes with history, and history rhymes with Coventry. Kinda, sorta, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the other clue. I think that's a bit of a stretch. This was the other clue. The other clue was it rhymes with history. And, and, and no, no, it, the, the, the clue was it was a case of history rhyming. Was was initially uh, I, well, okay. Well, that, that was how Eamon uh, put it to me, and I, I went with that. Mm -hmm. But still, I, I think that it's it's got to be. It's got to be there. Okay, I, 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 we'll take that for now. Uh, let us know again, Sean, if that's not the case. Yeah, and the fact that since then so many players have gone beyond 200 might be why we don't know that much about the Coventry innings because there's Anwar, then there's Coventry drawing level, but then we've got you know the Sachin 200, Rohit Sharma's hit three double hundreds uh, in one-day international cricket. And, of course, Belinda Clark was the first to do it, uh, making her 229 back in 1997, and Amelia Kerr more recently making 232 not out against Ireland in 2018. So some other correspondence we've had from uh, one of our Tom Stewarts, our 542 Tom Stewart. Now, this got answered by several people. Dane Hanstead in the DMs. Eamon Huck got his second snaffle of the week. Uh, Tim Minchin, not that Tim Minchin, who, who was also been tweeting us about various milk flavours, um, <laughs> who is also Victoria's egret on Twitter, which I'm reliably informed is a bad pun. And I am 
fucking devastated that I didn't get this because I know this number. This number's seared into my memory and somehow I just didn't make the little connection between the two because Tom Stewart was talking about averages that may not be career averages and it's not 54.2, it's 542 and 542 is what Adam Voges averaged against the West Indies over the course of his career once dismissed for 542 runs during that absurd streak where he broke Tendulkar's record for the biggest amount of test runs without being dismissed. So the 542 that Tom Stewart sent through is definitely Adam Voges' average v the Windies. Yeah, likewise, I can't believe we let that go through the cracks last week, but we finally get to the bottom of all the Tom Stewart's at 3.00. So um, right on the knockout last week, we had Dominic Davis. We said, well, a whole bunch of stuff relating to um, triple hundreds, even 300s, uh, but Dane Hanstead was there with the catch, ever reliable. Whenever there's a bobble, Dane Hanstead's there. He's the Miller to our Tabaret or something like that. Um, just a thought on Nerd Pledge 3.00. Is it not the batting average of Bobby Quiney, Dane said? And of course it is. He, he made nine runs, the Quiney nine, in three innings. What a so knock. The nine and, and then the pair. So a batting average of 3.00. It must be that. Thanks, Dominic Davis, and thanks, Dane Hanstead. And uh, Sean McGiven, our nerd pledger, also corresponded with us about uh, a near Bannerman last week. Um, Dean Elgar deserves a shout-out, he said, for coming so close for the Titans in South African domestic cricket. He made 101 out of 150 <laughs> as an opener and was the last man out. Not far away at all. We had Rob Richardson uh, talking to us about the Albert Trot six over the pavilion, which we went into in some depth uh, last weekend. Albert Trot only got four runs when he hit the ball over the Lord's Pavilion because in those days you had to hit the ball out of the ground to get six. And that's something he found in a Crick Info article, which seems ridiculous, really, when you consider he popped it into the, the groundsman's shed or whatever it was. But I guess it didn't go out of the complex and thus didn't get six for it. Pat Rogers, the ever-reliable correspondent, also wanted to let us know that uh, as far as uh, Albert Trott is concerned, he's recently been writing uh, about Australian cricketers with West Indian heritage. And one of those is Albert Trott, Albert and Harry Trott's father came to Melbourne from Antigua in 1855 searching for gold. Uh, that's in the most recent edition of Vox Cricket Magazine, which is a free online publication where Pat's been writing. So jump on there if you want to learn more about Albert and Harry Trott. And lastly, Pete Hickey has a recommendation for NADOC Week, which is the National Aboriginal and Islander Day Organising Committee Week, a celebration of Indigenous Australians. There's been a whole bunch of things happening through the WBBL with... uh, with Indigenous designed uniforms and uh, specially painted shoes and uh, it's been quite the celebration over the last week and Pete said uh, he happened to catch the documentary Walkabout Wickets on the ABC tonight which is still available on iView uh, for anybody who's on the internet which you are if you're listening to a podcast by definition so that was aired as part of NADOC week and he says I reckon it will be of interest to final worders and might be worth a plug on the next show indeed it is thank you Pete thank you everybody who has sent through a nerd pledge or a correction Jump in the DMs, find us on the internet, uh, send them through if you want to join up, patron.com slash the final word. And now it's time only for you to kick back, put your feet up and listen to Jonathan Agnew do what he does best, which is talk. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
We pick up our conversation with Jonathan Agnew with him describing how he received his first opportunity as a commentator for Test Match Special. Well, as, as is most of these things, doors opening fortunately along the way. And um, I was still playing cricket when I ventured into journalism um, via Radio Leicester, where I worked for a number of winters, sort of back end of my cricket career, maybe four winters, not doing uh, much in the way of sport, more sort of playing records and talking about sport in the winter months because I wasn't playing cricket obviously so I wasn't the person as I think the BBC thought that I was when I went for my interview I wasn't the person on the end of a stopwatch at Filbert Street I was the disc jockey in BBC Radio Leicester in the warmth playing records sometimes at the wrong speed while um, I would then catch up with the, with the scores so um, but I've, uh, that's how I fell in love with radio really doing sports desks writing scripts and realising there's life outside cricket. And coincidentally, the Today newspaper, which is the, the old colour tabloid, of course, Ed, Eddie Shah's creation, also gave me some work. And that was really good for me because that was virtually every sport you can imagine. They sent me off from skiing, surfing, Aussie rules. I mean, you, you name it, they sent me off to go and write about it, which is brilliant experience. And so eventually, to get around to how I got to TMS, today actually came in first and offered me the role of cricket correspondent for the 1991 Ashes Tour. Not a happy event if you're an Englishman. David Gower's Tiger Moth and everything else, and a disastrous trip. And in the course of that, Chris Martin Jenkins left the BBC to go to the Telegraph. The BBC job came available, and that's when I applied for it after that tour. So that's how I got the BBC job. If I hadn't worked for today, the newspaper, I don't think I'd have got it because that was a really good hardening up process and, and becoming aware of what a news story is and, and writing about it. And it was a time when news was really changing. 24-hour news, BBC Radio 5 Live, all that stuff was happening. And so I think to have had a bit of a tabloid experience was it, it was perhaps surprising as a necessity for Test Match Special in those days. But I think as correspondent, it was important to have that. Your work on Radio Leicester, you're saying you're sort of you're spinning discs and presumably having to do the dreaded Vox Pops and what have you. Is that, do you think, in retrospect, a fantastic grounding for the conversational style required for TMS? Yeah, I think you're right. And also, I just fell in love with radio. You know, I really got what radio is, the, the great communicator. And I was working quite a lot on the early morning shifts. And they're all mad. They're all bonkers, people who do those, get up at half four in the morning and go off and do that. It's crazy. But it's a very good team exercise as well and you're talking to people you're trying to get people out of bed and get them starting the day and so that was another aspect of it that i that i just really loved i hadn't really listened to test match special very much i'd heard it as a kid and my, my dad was a farmer and so at harvest time when, when the grain was coming in he would take his radio from from barn to barn faithfully tuned into twelve fifteen medium wave wasn't it i think was that the yeah, something like that the frequency anyway and these voices would come out, you know, Brian Johnson, John Arlott, Trevor Bailey, Fred Truman, Chris Martin Jenkins, Henry Blofeld, I suspect, might just have been in those days. And they, I was aware that they made him laugh quite a lot. And he obviously loved it. And, and there were, it, it was like sort of background music, in a way. And I got into it a bit listening to that. And, I, of course, I had no idea that, you know, 20-odd years later, I'd actually be working with these people. <laughs> They'd be friends, you know? That was bizarre. But that was when I was about 14, 15. Then I went off and played cricket professionally from 16. And so, obviously, on the road, it didn't really hear very much TMS, which is quite, actually quite a good thing in a way, because I remember lots of interviews when I got the job of people saying, my word, how do you feel about joining Test Match Special? It must be terrifying. And I thought, well, it's not really, and I don't know why it's not. Perhaps it's because I don't really know it very well. I think if I had had the sort of history of just being glued to Test Match Special and being a, a TMS junkie, 
I would have found it much more nerve-wracking that first day when I walked into Headingley, but I didn't really. I just just rocked up. I was petrified, I guess. I, I very nearly <laughs> jumped, jumped straight out the window before I did my first bit of commentary. <laughs> That's by the by. But, so, but, you, but, you, but you would have listened to it, whereas I... Yeah. Uh, I, I have to say, I just didn't... I, I knew of the programme, but I didn't know of its, of its status, really. So when you began, you began as a summariser... Presumably that was that was because that's the assumption. If you're an ex-player, you're going to sit in the summarizer's chair. Is that right? Well, no, it's because I'd never commentated before. So as I said, I think the BBC, when I applied for the job, thought that I was the chap down at Filbert Street uh, or Welford Road commentating on the Tigers. And we had Blethyn Jones who used to do that and a few football reporters and so on who did the football. So I, I hadn't actually ever done any commentary on anything. And I hadn't actually done any of those sort of 40-second reports that you have to do and what keeps you going. But those days were particularly tight. It's loosened a bit now. But if they said 40 seconds, you had to talk for 40 seconds. So I hadn't actually done any of that at all. So the idea of me being a summariser was that I would just get a feel for the programme, really, and see how, how they did it. And since the other two summarisers, by and large, were, were Fred Truman and, and Trevor Bailey, it was a bit weird because I think Brian Johnson spent much of that first summer wondering who I was. You know, who is this cricketing legend who's coming to join us as another <laughs> summariser alongside Fred and Trevor? Oh, he, well, okay, that's, we, won't, we won't talk about his bowling average in Test cricket, but it was a bit odd. But that's why I did it. So all I did that first summer, apart from the last Test. Uh, was to be a summariser, and then I made my debut. Peter very kindly gave me the Sri Lankans <laughs> uh, as my first test match, which was quite a tricky debut. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it, but that, that, that was by then, having summarised for five tests, I think I was ready to go, really. And funny enough, now I'd be terrified if I was asked to summarise again. Um, I just wouldn't know where to start. Just Sorry, just very briefly, for the, for the record... Was it the leg over? Was that your last test match as a summariser thing? So it's the last test of 91, wasn't it? Yes, that was my last one. And um, it was at the Oval. And it didn't seem like a great career move at the time because Brian Johnston was so hacked off about it that he stomped out of the box and was really quite, really cross about it. He felt he'd let the side down, that it was stupid and everything else. And he, he was really very grumpy. Uh, his son Barry told me how he got home that night and was really really quite forlorn about the whole thing. It was only the next day when the letters started coming. And also the Today programme, I did the Today programme the next morning, and Gary Richardson played it. And everyone was laughing, of course, in the Today studio. And I thought, it might, it might turn out all right after all. So I took him down to the engineer's box when he arrived. He was still grumpy. And uh, I played him it. And that was it. I mean, he was sold. And he just carried a copy around wherever he went. And when he had his heart attack and was lying motionless in his hospital bed... Um, shortly before he died, they, they, they played it to him to try and get it to, to, to bring him round, which I don't think that did. I mean, it did come round, but I don't think it was due to the leg over. But it was, it was, it was a big part of Brian's life as well. He loved it in the end. Egg, is the transition from summariser to ball-by-ball commentator isn't one that people tend to do. Like, there's the broadcast journalists who do the commentary, and then often it's the you know, former player that does the summaries. You're one of the very few that have made that, that leap from one to the other. From a technical perspective, having not been sort of ensconced in test match special if you like as you mentioned before and having been a summariser the actual technical side of being a caller how did you find that transition well it probably sounds really arrogant when I say that I just found it quite easy because I think I think you are what you are you know I, I, I think there's only so much that you can actually really learn about something like ball by ball commentary I and mean, you can improve you can improve massively on what you are but I think I think I don't know I, mean, I can ask this a lot and I just think that uh, 
You know, it's just something if, if it comes naturally to you. If there's something in everybody's life that they can do by just sitting down and, and doing it or... And, and I just think that I kind of stumbled up across what I can do you know, without much effort in a way. That doesn't mean to say that... I, I mean, I was probably rubbish when I started and I used, to, I used to listen to recordings a lot and get the engineers to, to record segments and I then listen to them in the car going back at night. It's been really interesting exercise here listening back to the Stokes test match, for instance, at the heading of the game, they replayed it in full because I'm used to hearing clips of the winning runs or wickets taken or whatever, but actually to listen to your whole performance over a day, I, I was, I was, that was really interesting and I made a lot of notes. And things like, how often do you give the score, which you're always berated for and stuff, you know, things like that actually gave an opportunity to listen back and actually uh, analyse your own performance. But to answer your question, I just turned up and did it, really. I mean... <laughs> And, and then hopefully learnt as I went along. But I mean, come on, I was learning from the best. I was learning that summer from Brian, from Tony Cozier, from Chris Martin Jenkins, Don Mosey. You know, I had them as for five tests sitting beside them. So if you've got all of that, plus you, you're sort of you're, you're, you, you can kind of get get it anyway. If you've got tutors like that to help you, then yeah, it was it was you know, a massive stroke of luck really to be able to just walk in like that. It's a pretty interesting time where you enter the box because it moves from uh, you know, Radio 3, medium wave, to this Radio 5 experiment, which at the time the, the expectation was that Test Match Special wouldn't be on as much as it was before. In the end, it didn't quite play out that way, but there was a lot of scrutiny on the program in that little era there as to how it would progress, and, and it was sort of coming towards the end of Brian Johnston's uh, long helm, I suppose, or long time at the helm. How important do you think it was that you came in when... Let me get this right, but almost Test Match Special was on trial again to an extent in that era and that you were there then experiencing the pressure being up a little bit, especially with, with the guy that ran the show coming towards the end. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So actually, those first three years, we were on three different frequencies. So it was Radio 3 Medium Wave in 91, Radio 3 FM uh, for one summer after that, which sounded great but was quite unpopular with the music listeners. And then it was Radio 5, it wasn't 5 Live, it was Radio 5, we had musical jingles to start, and that was pretty horrendous. And then, because it didn't, it didn't work, and so that winter the negotiations went in to get us on Radio 4 Longwave, and those negotiations were conducted with the view of Brian still leading the programme. And when the decision was made that it was going to move to Longwave, he died. And so that first winter tour, we went to the West Indies, just a month or so after he died. And that was our first outing on Radio 4 Longwave. And so it was kind of his legacy, really, that we, had, we did get on that network. And I, I, I doubt, you know, if, if he hadn't been around, I, I doubt we'd have done it. And I don't know where Test Match Special would have gone, but it was built around this massive character and, and just you know, radio genius. That, that's something that I don't think people take into account enough. They think of TMS as this never-changing or, or, you know, forever-present service and yet what you're describing there is that actually it was quite precarious its existence depending on the available bandwidth were you guys always aware of that in those days yeah absolutely i mean we had john inverdale presenting in the box for a while when it was on five and i like john a lot but that wasn't kind of what test my specials about uh, i remember martin johnson writing an article about how it would sound on five live on radio five and sort of joking about us reading out racing results and you know that sort of thing. No, no, it was the, the future of Test Match Special then was very much in the balance. It really was. And as I said, it, it was because they could put Brian Johnston out there, who had a massive influence 
with, you know, the director general and all this sort of stuff. And Brian was just an icon. And so because we were able to, or, or Peter, I guess, and, and, and the head of sport and so on, were able to really push it as being Brian Johnston's programme, that is what got us onto Radio 4 Longwave. And, you know, that he died before he ever said a word on Radio 4 Longwave was, was a great irony. But, you know, I think it was helpful that I had been there for those three years because you know, I was a sort of a bridge, really. And although Peter never... Um, uh, you know, I was never considered to be a, re- a replacement of Brian Johnson. You could never be that. And neither was, was Henry when he came back. You know, people wrote about, oh, you know, Brian Johnson has died, so therefore they had to get Henry Blofeld back, and he's the new, you know, the new Brian Johnston. That's impossible to be a new Brian Johnston. But I think that the influence of the programme and the influence that he had had on, on me at the time helped sort of the bridge, if you like, to, to, to get us away and launch us onto Radio 4 Longwave, which, again, was very political. I mean, the hostility that we had when we arrived on there, from, especially from, from women um, who just didn't want us there at all, they were, and we were interrupting Women's Hour and everything else. Absolute fury broke out in that first summer. But by the end of it, what was lovely was that a lot of these women would then write and say, uh, I hated it when you first turned up in May, my word, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I rather like you now. Here's a, here's, here's a nice uh, strawberry sponge. And, you know, they, they would send cakes. And so actually, again, that was a really important breakthrough because it did really get us into, into the, the, you know, women's daily life. And which is why our audience now is, is so diverse. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, women love test match specialists as much as men do. If you said that 50 years ago, I don't think that would have been the case. It was a, it was a cricket programme, all to- totally dominated by men and broadcast at men. Whereas going on to Radio 4 Longwave opened us up to, to a very female audience during the day. And I think that has thrived. Well, I know it's thrived ever since. And it's been helped, of course, by finally women playing a more prominent role on the programme. You mentioned that Brian Johnston. We've got to talk about Brian Johnston. Can you sort of describe his overarching influence on the programme? Not, not just when you arrived, but your sense of his sort of role in it for the decade, 15 years before you arrived. Well, Brian set the tone. And Brian changed the programme. When, when, when he went on there full time, when uh, he was um, jocked off by television, which is something he never really got over. Uh, he was mortified by that. But then you know, it was radio's gain. And that was when he transformed the programme from being, as I was talking before, about quite a tight cricket commentary. I mean, lots of lovely language and description and so on, you know, from John Arlott and co. It was, it was beautiful. But, but Brian has reached out into other areas with his word games and his cakes and his nicknames for all the... Cast. I mean, he, he, he transformed Test Match Special from you know, that tight cricket programme to a soap opera, really, with these characters that he, he sort of created and enlarged. You know, Sir Frederick and the Boyle and, and the Bearded Wonder and all of that. That was all Brian. And so people listening suddenly had this, this great cast in front of them of these characters, and they can, you can sort of picture them. You know, the bearded wonder. Well, he's got a beard, obviously he has, and he, you know, Bill Friend, he does all this stuff, and, and, and Sir Frederick with his pipe chuntering away in the background, and, and everything else, you know, and, and because they were such strong characters as well, and so different. So you've got Fred uh, chuntering away with his pipe, and you know, smoking his pipe in those days seemed amazing. Trevor, so, you know, just a man of few words, literally. And if he, if he called anyone a good player... 
My word, that's probably Don Bradman. You know, he was, he, he was very sparing in his praise, was, was Trevor. But he was he had this wonderful, wonderful, succinct way of, of summing things up. And then you had, you know, you had Chris and you had Henry and, and all of that. And so it really was a soap opera. And that, I think, is what has created Test Match Special's tradition and why it's, it's not just a sports programme, because that tradition of the characters involved in it has, has, has endured. And, and although the characters are different, there's still that feeling that this is more than just people rocking up and just describing a cricket match. These are people who... You know, with the amount of times we're asked, oh, you're all jolly good friends together, you go out and do this and you just spend all the... Well, no, not really. You know, we go up and we go to work. But Test Match Special is about creating this... Well, I remember it being written about as once as being... You, know, you open the door and it's a nice place, which sounds a bit trite. I think Mihir Bose wrote that, but I knew what he meant. It's a nice place. You know, until Jeffrey comes along, people don't fall out with each other. People aren't nasty to each other. People aren't horrid. It's people have a bit of fun and it's gentle and it's and that's again I think what people like about it because yeah you get the old sparky moment of course but I think just people just like the, the gentle easy pace of of that noise in the background and that's that's why the program has been so successful. That sort of frivolity that Johnston brought to it, uh, whilst extremely popular in growing the, the reach of the show, as you talk about, it, it wasn't necessarily popular with everyone, though. There would have been, I'm sure, a contingent of people who would have longed for how it was before. Is that still sort of a balance that not necessarily needs to be struck now, but when you first started, that you were mindful that there were people out there who, even though, uh, you know, there were the cakes, there were the kind of the, the anti-cake crew, if you like, you thought that, you know, this should be less about cake and more about cricket. Oh, we always get that. I mean, when I, when I started, there was very much um, a sort of leg-pulling mentality about Test Match Special. There isn't now. I mean, we do the odd setup and the odd Josh. But Neville Oliver and I, in particular, were, were pretty ruthless <laughs> in stitching up the old ones. I mean, Neville got it as well. Neville, you know, the great, wonderful Australian character, who, again, really got Test Match Special. But, I mean, things like tipexing out the names of the presentation crew for Cornhill Insurance, you know, so Jonas would be, well, no, down there at the end of the game, you know, well, we've got so-and-so, we've got the England captain, so, so uh, for call Insurance, it's Hugh Jars, uh, and then and so down he'd go, and, and he would just do all this, and they couldn't understand what faxes were, so we'd sit at the back with those very early laptops and create a, a perfect sort of letterhead fax and press a button, and you'd sit going, up at the fax machine in the corner of the box, and he'd tear it off, and I remember doing Henry once, with rival carpet companies from Sheffield, where the first one was something like, Dear Henry Blofeld, we think you're the best commentator in the world. That's always a good place to, to start for a mention. If you mention our carpets, we'll send you a free one. All the best. Uh, so-and-so at Jones's Carpets, Sheffield. So, well, I dare old things. So, there we go. And you can see it sort of fold the facts up and pop it into his top pocket with a free carpet coming his way. So, at the back, meanwhile, there's Jones's Carpets from Sheffield. <laughs> it's an absolute disgrace. Uh, we heard you give a blatant plug to our main rival here in Sheffield. If you don't give us a mention too, we're going to report to the Director General. Boom, and sent that off. So blowers is not, oh, my word. Uh, well, obviously, um, <laughs> some very fine carpet makers in Sheffield. And uh, as you can see, it sort of tear up rather sadly the fact that it's guaranteeing his free one. But we used to do that all the time. And, I mean, some, some work, some are very in-house. And Peter sort of let it happen because, he, I mean, he enjoyed it as much as anybody else. But it was... There were so many of those sort of silly wind-ups, um, you know, and, and, and that was what it was. It's... But the programme's changed a bit now, and, and 
I don't think you could necessarily do that. And part of it, I think, was because you know, I was only 31 at the time. Jonas was, what, um, 70, 81? 81, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was this sort of like a granddad gap. Um, and so we could just pull his leg. And the notes we used to give him for views from the boundary that had been horrendously doctored, you know, again. And he would, he would go ploughing in. There's this conductor... Uh, James Judd from Radio 3. We thought it politically, we'd get a conductor on from Radio... This is when we were on FM. Get a conductor on and we'll win over all the, all the FM critics. Well, he kept ferrets and his, his, so his, 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 his nickname was Ratty. So, well, Mr Judd, I should call you Ratty. Uh, great to have you here. And you can see James Judd did he fall off his chair. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was... It, it seems silly now, of course. But, you know, that was... I think, I, guess, I mean, programs kind of, they, they, they mutate, don't they? They morph, and that's where we were was in that, those days. To a degree, actually, uh, still though, a legacy of the platform you're on. I mean, on Five Live, I'm very conscious of the fact that we're part of a, a sports channel, if you know what I mean. So to a degree, the tone, it's not that, you know, we, we have licence to be TMS, but we are still going out on Five Live Sports Extra. Whereas if you're going out on Radio 4 Longwave, there is something perhaps a bit more uh, whimsical about about the platform. Would that be fair to say? Definitely true, because for those few early years, although I was the BBC cricket correspondent, there was no really serious story knocking about, not really. And so I was better known as being this fellow who, who for the, you know, pulled Brian Johnston's leg and, and, and the leg over and that, until suddenly we had the dirt in the pocket. And... OK, I took, a, I took a hard line, but, you know, we'd taken a hard line against Pakistan and the ball tampering uh, when they were last over. The England captain apparently banged to rights, and I took a hard view on what I thought should happen. And people were horrified. A lot of people were horrified. They couldn't really... You know, that, that, the, the dual role, if you like, didn't... It really was like a, you know, like a slap in the face to some people. It was me doing my job, whether I was right or wrong. It makes no difference, really. You know, I was doing what I thought was my job, and the BBC supported me. But, but the fact that then, yes, the Test Match special person has to kick into the correspondent view and say that I thought the captain should go, yeah, it certainly, it certainly jarred with a few. Jarred with a few journalists as well. <laughs> Just shifting gears a little bit, the importance of always having the, the overseas commentators join you whether they were um, former players or, or commentators in in the ball by ball sense um both when you started and i guess through to today really uh having that variety having that i guess the extra spice to the cast someone like jim for example who the the tms audience loves so dearly definitely and and they it just works really well to have people coming in and again where we've been very fortunate is i think um that the people have come in just, just always got the program you know tony again was a tony cozio just just brilliant at it what i love about jim is that jim jim's an aussie you know jim doesn't doesn't hide the fact that he's an aussie and i think we've rather anglicized jim which i think is great i think it's been one of our great triumphs in that jim when we when he comes to england stays here in my house and he goes across to the pub, which he loves, this whole notion of the village pub, but he drives his car around with a left-hand drive for some reason. I never understand why he gets a left-hand drive car, but he always does. And he, he just really gets England. He's explored all over England. So you know, I, think, I think the programme has been good for Jim, actually. You know, it, it's just, 
I don't know how I don't know what he would have thought about it at first because he is such a he is such a proud Aussie wearing his heart on his Aussie sleeve. He just loves TMS. He loves TMS, and I think that influence has really shown on on grandstand in Australia too, where you know they more or less do do the same do the same thing, and and that again is, a, is a, I think says a lot about TMS. You know, you go to New Zealand. Uh, and radio sport, and they, they they're doing more or less the same thing. You know, you go to unfortunately it's rather wound down a bit now. But in those early days in the West Indies, there would actually be rival cricket commentaries on each island. So so Chris would end up on one, and I'd end up on the other, and you'd be up against each other commercially, locally, which is always rather good fun. But they again were doing doing the same thing because. I don't think there's any other sport that works as well on the radio as cricket does. And if, and, and, and that however people try and change it, modernise it and try and make it more serious, I, I just don't think that works. You know, you've got the time for, for it to be gentle and it to be nice and to talk about whimsical nonsense. And that's, you know, that's, that's why the programme works. Can you talk to us a bit about Tony Cozy? Partly because he was just somebody that, whose voice was so evocative. He, he was, whenever the West Indies were there, it was always him. And... And when I discovered he was actually white, it completely blew my mind. How do you esteem Tony Cozier in the sort of pantheon of radio broadcasters? Right up there. And not least because he's the only person I know who seamlessly moved between television commentary and radio commentary. I'm not talking about the guys who come backwards and forwards, you know, summarising, like Jeffrey or Michael, that's fine. But ball by ball, mainline commentary... Tony nailed both, and that's very, very rare. He could just move straight from TV and a very disciplined style that you have to do there, walk straight round into us with an over in between, bang, and he's back in radio mode, telling his stories and so on. He loved cricket. He loved the Caribbean. He, he loved West Indies cricket. He saw the problems coming way before anybody else, and it kind of destroyed him, really, when, when West Indies cricket inevitably... Uh, you know, just the, 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 the demise of, of that great team and, and the administrations and everything else afterwards. Yeah, it was a tragedy, and, and Tony was, was devastated by it. His parties were legendary in those good old days of the, of the rest days between tests. I mean, what better place to have a rest day of a test match than in Barbados, for goodness sake? Uh, and we'd all set off in our mini mokes and head over to the east side of the island and try and find Tony's beach hut which always took hours. There were never any signposts to that or anything. And we'd get there and the music would be going and the rum punch would be flowing and there'd be cricket on the beach. Uh, and Gary Sobers might be there or Wes Hall might be there or whatever. And you'd just sit there and talk cricket and then at the end of a very long day on the rum punch you'd try and drive back to the West Coast again uh, and pick up the cricket the next day. But that's Tony, again, he always used to stay here. And, um, you know, it's, just, it's, it's rather nice. He, he, he always stayed here, Jim, Brown Waddle... You know, those those are the those are the three of us really you know in in, in that little group and it's it's lovely that we that we are you know or sadly Tony's not with us anymore but uh, you know very very much a, you know, a, a strong family really with that family idea the idea of um, uh, sort of it being a stronger thing than just a radio program uh, with Tony Cozier and Christopher Martin Jenkins dying in kind of I guess quite quite close proximity to each other what effect did it have on on you and and the others that have been there for such a long time as part of the program? Yeah, well, it was tragic. You know, both both of them, you know, just awful. Um, Christopher will always miss, and we, what, what we'll miss, uh, I think, about both of them was their sort of real amateurs' love of the game. You know, I know you know, Dan has that. It, it's and it, you know, it's it, it 
comes through at every pore. It's the, it's the untainted love of cricket that all of us had. I had when I was 15, 16. But it kind of gets beaten out of you as a professional player. And you do become more cynical about the game. And you lose track of matches. And you've seen so much cricket. And, and, and yes, we all absolutely adore the game. But once you've played professionally and you've stood at fine leg for 15 years uh, or whatever, and you've, you've, you know, you're running in your long johns at, at, at uh, you know, Cardiff or something, it's just a different game. And Christopher never, ever lost that total amateur's love of the game. And neither did Tony. You know, they were decent cricketers, decent club cricketers. But they always, you know, they always represented the club cricketer. In CMJ's case, you know, the university cricket, and, and and those ones that are very important. And they were really important to them. And so, with Chris going, you know, there, there is that kind of that that bit missing. You know, Chris would write thousands of words on stuff that you know, most of us would think was completely irrelevant. <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't irrelevant to Chris, and it wasn't irrelevant to the game. And it's really important that, you know, so much of my life now is taken up watching international cricket that, you know, you, you can take your eye off very easily what's happening you know, below that, actually. And that's why we need, you know, some genuine, untainted fans of the game to speak up for the amateur. I think that's, that's really important that both of those did that. But another thing that, that sort of came in, but you really enhanced, was the view from the boundary slot. So, originally, as I understand it, because the programme, Peter Baxter was telling me, would actually just go off at lunchtime so they could go and play music on Radio 3 because that was the, the platform they were on. Once you've actually got that whole space of time to play with from 10.30 till close of play, you're doing lunch, you're doing tea, when did that, that sort of view from the boundary and the whole lunchtime slots really start to ramp up? Well, the view from the boundary started before I got there, but you're right. I mean, that's been the biggest change in the programme, that it's now it's on all the time. And we did used to, you know, so there we go, it's lunch, um, back, back to the studio, and Brian Johnson would watch Neighbours. <laughs> He'd sit there with a portable telly, uh, eating his sandwich, and, and watching Neighbours. And uh, it, then, um, you know, he'd, he'd, get back to, he'd get back to business. And occasionally he'd phone up um, he'd phone up Paul Getty afterwards and they'd chat about what Mrs Mangle was up to, uh, and then you'd welcome listeners back to Test Match Special. I mean, it was, it was bizarre, and so you'd hand and that's how cake started. You know, well, the players coming off a tea, uh, lucky old them. They were going for some cake. Don't worry about us. Uh, you'll join us again in fifteen minutes, and that's when the first cake turned up because somebody felt sorry for, <laughs> for Brian. So the transformation now is is massive. It's much more of a news program. I think that's something that it, it you know it, it 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 thrives on actually the opportunity for for news for features for talking to people and certainly the view from the boundary was again it was i mean brian always did them i did them for some years before i got there um it's amazing looking down the list that he that, that he that he had but he always did them and then when brian died i think peter probably rightly actually took the view again but trying to avoid this perception of there being an obvious well there he is he's replaced brian johnston so he used to hand the views from the boundary around. So, you know, Graham Fowler has, has done some, Simon Mann, uh, I did some, Blowers, uh, you know, every, he, he literally just scattered them about. So there was no obvious successor, which is good because I think 
you know, I think you'd have felt some pressure, frankly, because people people came on that program because they wanted to be interviewed by Brian Johnston. You know, <laughs> that was that was part of the the pull. You know, it was something that I wanted to do. Actually, I've always wanted to to do that slot. And when Adam took over, he he made it he made it my slot. Um, there are some. I mean, Dan, you, you've you've done some. You know, when it's been obvious that there's been somebody that you know you would have a particular interest in, or Simon. Well, you know, do it. You know, I'm not hanging on us. It's not that sort of relationship at all with the program. You know, it's nice that people can really interview people who they want to interview, and I feel really strongly about that. But I do enjoy that because you are there, as you know, for 35 minutes probably, with nowhere else to go. You can't hand back to studio. You can't do any traffic news. There's no weatherman waiting. You know, it's you and that person. And it's a challenge. It is a challenge. And you're very reliant on that person to want to come and play. Most do. Uh, there's a rather famous actor who, in my experience, didn't, and it was a nightmare. It was the longest 35 minutes of my life. It's one time Emma said she turned off. Yeah, I guess I heard you say in the past it's the hardest part of your job is that, or maybe you described it as the most nerve-wracking part of your job because you don't know for sure that the guest is going to play ball. So in the lead-up to it, you know, there's that... Will they, won't they? But what I do is I will go and say hello to them. I, 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 it was Shilp, but now it's Henry who goes and gets them from wherever they're sitting. And I always make the rule, right, I don't want to see them before quarter to one, because we're on at one o'clock. And I'm only going to, I only talk to them for five minutes. Because I always hate the interviews when you hear someone say, what well, is we were saying off air? And, and, and I, don't, I don't want to get that. I just want to get a bit of a feel for what they are. Remind them why they're there, which is to have some fun. And to, you haven't got to talk about cricket. Most of them, you know, a lot of them come on, they're terrified that they're going to be shown up for their lack of knowledge of cricket. And that's not what it's about at all. It's about your love of the, of the game. And, and if you're going to speak 15 minutes about it, well, that's fine. But at least I'll know that. And then you plan out where you want to go. But it does do a huge amount of research. Uh, I mean, Adam does a load. Henry does a load. I will do my own. And that way, you know, my aim is often not to, not to look down at my notes at all. I'm always very conscious when I'm being interviewed. Uh, of people you know, looking down a list of stuff and they think, oh, this boat doesn't really know what he's doing. So they're there. The notes are there. But I try and refer to them as little as possible, if at all, because then it's, it's there. It's a kind of a safety harness. What I do do, if, um, and it's, it's, good, it's, it's a good thing anyway, but if I suddenly need to get my mind around something or think, how am I going to go next? I'll say, well, I'm talking to so-and-so. Uh, the score from here is so-and-so. And so you read the scorecard for 30 seconds while your mind's going, what the hell am I going to say next? Oh, OK, right, OK, got it. And there we go. Right, back to where we were. So it's actually quite a good name check for the person anyway. <laughs> but it's usually a sign that I'm thinking, OK, right, where are we going to go here? And Adam might drop a thought into my headphones at the same time because he knows me backwards now. He knows why I do it. So there might be a little word coming there and then off we go. And that's... It's a seamless way of digging, digging yourself out of um, a It's hole. an extraordinary slot, though, and it's an extraordinary testament to the programme, Test Match Special itself, that you will have interviewed now... I mean, how many Prime Ministers? You, you've had Theresa May, David Cameron, um, high-profile politicians. John Howard, uh, Musharraf, Pakistan, um, quite a lot of West Indian ones. Tarbo and Becky, Nelson Mandela, who I mentioned, wasn't viewed from the boundary, but I interviewed him. Oh, no, we interviewed... You know, it's, it's ridiculous the people that you have access to. Doing but why, that why is it that they want to come on? But people want to be special? honest. I mean, it's, 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 it's we take it for granted. But you know, there, are, there isn't another sports program that draws in the prime minister to talk to for thirty-five minutes. <laughs> no, um, and actually, Boris Johnson's been on. He was on a few, a few years ago. Um, no, and you're absolutely right. But I do remember 
When the riots happened in London, when Cameron was Prime Minister and he went on holiday, do you remember? Uh, it wasn't his fault, he was on holiday at the time. But anyway, he came back and we were approached for him to come on at tea one day at the Oval. The riots had just finished and it was pretty obviously a PR stunt that he would come on, talk nicely on Radio 4 to his sort of audience and that you know, it would be a nice gentle listen and so on. Well, I got on to Nick Robinson that morning. I said, right, I've got the Prime Minister for 15 minutes. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, 15 minutes. So what am I going to ask him? And he gave me this sort of ruthless <laughs> interview. And so we arrived and we did, we did it down at the, the, the sort of member's end at the Oval, handed over. And, and David Cameron was there and he had a cup of tea and it was all very nice and cosy. Anyway, I launched in with this interview and you could see him more and more shell-shocked. It wasn't me at all. It was, it was, it was Nick really coming out of these questions. And he, he finished, he finished, he's sort of sitting back. That was a Paxman, he said, after he'd gone off, gone off air. But you felt you had to do it. You know, you, you can't just be in that. If you're going to interview politicians, you can't give them an easy ride. I mean, you're not going to do a Paxman. But you also, I think it would have been letting the programme down if we had just laid back and had our tummies tickled and had the Prime Minister on for a nice gentle interview when actually there's some serious stuff going on. And so that was... <laughs> that was that was quite a funny one, but most of the time, I mean, John Howard, I think I've done two or three times now. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't wait to get on. But the people you get, I mean, Russell Crowe was a good one when Shilpa was working with us. She heard that Russell was there because his Jeff Crowe, his first cousin, was match referee at Lords, and Shilpa went across and said, "Will you come on Test Match Special?" And he told her to f off. <laughs> and he, Shilpa came back and said, "He, he said, what am I going to do?" I said, "Shilpa, you know what you're going to do." get back in there so poor poor little Shilpa heads off again <laughs> to Russell Crowe and asks him again and 10 minutes later there is at the door so you know that was I suppose perhaps he admired her tenacity or something but that's you know you do have to she spent five days working on Brian May at, at the Oval um one time I mean and and, and um and Hugh Grant was five days I think of patience again working wearing them down getting them on Whereas others, you know, they come on at the drop of a hat. I remember someone failed to come on. Someone from Spandau Ballet was supposed to come, and it was poorly. And so the call went out at about 20 to 1 with 20 minutes to go. Go and find somebody for view for the boundary. And I was commentating at the time, up to lunch. Who the hell am I going to get? Anyway, there's a bit of a flurry of activity <laughs> at five past one, and I'm thinking, who am I going to interview? And I look to my right, and I'm, you know what I'm right down. I'm not really up on sort of modern stuff very much. And there's this very attractive woman sitting there. And I thought, I'm sure I know you. I'm sure you know. And Adam, Davina McCall. Oh, God, not Davina McCall! Thinking, right, what the hell am I going to talk to Davina McCall about for the next 35 minutes? Uh, and she went, of course, she's a pro. She's absolutely brilliant. And off we went. But it, you can get, I mean, Alice Cooper appeared for no apparent reason at Lords, and they had to be, interview Alice Cooper. It was a lovely bloke. He didn't know much about cricket. Um, but, you're, you know, again, with no time to do any research. I think Bl- Blowers was quite startled by his garb, wasn't he, when he saw Alice Cooper, I think. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the, the best of all was with, I was on with Boycott, and I said, I saw Alice walk in behind us with his wife, and I said, you never guess who I'm interviewing, Jeffrey, Alice Cooper. And I pointed behind me like that, making it very obvious. You know, Alice Cooper, Jeffrey, Alice Cooper. He's never heard of any of these people. And he looked totally blank. I said, Alice Cooper. And he turned around and he said, oh, hello, Alice. He said, nice to meet you, love. And he shook Mrs. Cooper by the hand. <laughs> <laughs> you thought Alice Cooper was Mrs. Cooper. There you go. So that was a classic. My experience of being on TMS has been 
I, maybe just people are uh, hideous behind my back, but it seems that it, we have a very lovely ship at the moment and people seem to get on very well. And it's very supportive. It can't always have been the case and you will have worked a bit, will you not, with Don Mosey and he, he sort of produced that book that caused ructions. So TMS was a little bit like a swan, wasn't it? I mean, it was fiercely paddling under the water and, and looking serene as it went past sometimes. The Alderman's Tale, that was my first summer and I was unaware of it again because I, I was unaware of the program uh, unaware of this stuff and that's Don Mosey who was yeah bluff northerner uh, spoke his mind always always felt the world was against him and always felt that the establishment was against him he had his you know well, that was him but he, he really had this sort of chip on his shoulder about that and he for some reason got into his head that he was going to be sacked uh, the previous year and so he wrote this venomous book he wrote some terrible things about Peter and about Christopher. Just stuff that you think, what? You know, it, it, was, it was bad. But anyway, the, the, the problem was, of course, it did split the box. Because not least, actually, Brian Johnston, old Etonian, actually got on very well with Don Mosey. And he was horrified at this complete betrayal. And so, again, a, a new boy, I was unaware of a lot of it, except I, horrendously, at the start of every match, these huge boxes would arrive and be placed in the commentary box. And they were boxes of books for Don to sign. <laughs> in, the, in the commentary box, while Chris is in there, and John is... And, and it, was, it was pretty awful. It, it, it was awful. And Don, Don, Don said to me on my first match, I turned up at Headingley, he said, I just want to say something to you, young man. He said, don't, I don't hold it against you that you went to a public school. I said, oh, thanks, Don. Um, very kind of you. I think that was a little bit weird. But that was, that was how he was. Uh, but it was... It was sad because he was a very integral part of that programme and it was the balance of the programme that, that allowed him to be on it. And Fred, you know, him and Fred were kind of from the same sort of school, if you like, and they were totally welcome and, and you know, a very integral part of the show. Fred, for goodness sake, you know, I mean, Fred never really, never, never had those issues, but Don did. And I think it's a shame because actually it was because of who he was that the programme loved him. And it wasn't because of who he was that people on the programme hated him, because they didn't. It was, it was, he got in a bit of a real tangle. When I first started listening, and for quite a long time, the summarisers were Fred and Trevor. That seemed to be basically it. It can't have been quite it, but it, they seemed to be ever-present. By the time we get into the, the sort of early 90s, there starts to be more of a sort of moving carousel of summarisers, doesn't it? The likes of Foxy and Angus Fraser, Mike Selvey, Vic Marks coming on board when did that happen and why did that happen it was and i think that actually it was part of the program's success that there were few people on it i go back to that sort of soap opera cast again it was very easy for listeners to just have these half dozen because there would always be i mean victor there was mike selvey not on every game but they would sort of float in and out in those days graham fowler there might be an overseas one or two so it, it, it was a much tighter cast but I think as the programme became a bit more newsy, so we're talking about the sort of Five Live influence again, I think, therefore, the feeling was that you'd get more current people on. And it also, it was a bit ridiculous when you had Fred and Trevor summarising on a one-day international when neither of them had ever, had ever played in one uh, and didn't really know as Fred would say what was going off out there, you know. So that was why there was that, that movement to get more people in. And I think... Uh, you know, to, to appeal to a to a younger audience. You know, when Michael Vaughan, who was a you know national hero when he won won the Ashes, 
not many years later, he's starting to turn up on Test Match Special. I think that has been really good for the programme in that it, it, it is someone that, that, you know, that, that the, the, the audience that we're trying to hit would relate to. And so whereas it, it, it established itself, I think, in the early years, that was, part, it was really important that those voices were as they were and the cast list was fairly small. But I think now it's changed a bit and there's a bit more. I want to, oh, what's, what's he got to say? Because he, he, was, he was playing this last year. Uh, he played in the World Cup final. What has he got to say about that? And, and, you know, Mark Wood coming on last year was a great success because he's just such a lovely bloke. And there was, he'd be playing in the World Cup final and so on. So yeah, I think it's good. I think I, I, you wouldn't, don't want too many because I, think, I don't think you ever want to lose that feeling of it being a soap opera and that the cast is there. But it's, um, you know, you don't, you don't want Ben Hur. <laughs> But you can you can sort of expand it to to Corey or something or, or EastEnders, whereas it was a very tight little cast list before. So uh, there's, there's somewhere in between is the happy medium. So in terms of people leaving, we talked about like obviously Christopher and, and Tony Cozy are in a separate category. But I'm just thinking about the two the, before you. There's like there's the Arlet era, there's the, the the Johnston era, and then there's the Agnew era. If you want to break it into three, I know it's quite crude, but if you wanted to break it into three, that's how you would do it. If you can reflect on those who are left at the end of the Arlet era, so I know that's when the Johnston era kind of the hegemony is there. But how that was experienced, do you think that the, the, those who are left after Arlet finished up in 1980, how that changed the show, and I guess by extension when Johnston left, how that changed the show as well when you were helming it. Well, there must have been a massive pressure again when, when John Arlott you know, walked away. I mean, I obviously never worked with John. I mean, he'd gone 10 years before I, yeah. before I did. I only met him a couple of times. But, I, I mean, I love listening back to his stuff. And, and it's, it's amazing the, 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 the great long pauses that he left. are just extraordinary. I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen these days. Um, it just it would often you know for a fast boat walk all the way back to his mark and then running in again there'd be nothing said you just listen to the audience and that was that was one of his one of his great skills i suppose people would be listening and waiting and just waiting for the great man to to utter something i, I did think i know i'm a bit controversial i did think he got it wrong once i think bradman's last innings i have to say i think i think john got it wrong and you know we can all make mistakes but i just think in saying nothing when Don Bradman walked off at the Oval for the last time ever, just to say nothing apart from Holly's, Bradman bowled Holly's naught. I just thought that was, yeah, that was just a mistake. You know, what was Bradman doing? What was the crowd doing? What were the players doing? What was, what was going on, John? I guess imagine shouting at the radio, what the hell's happening? And he didn't say anything. So I thought, I thought he did get that one wrong, if I'm honest. But the other times it was, it was, it was just adding to that, that drama really of just that, crowd sound in the background and if he had nothing to say he wouldn't say anything and of course in those days the summarizers respected john so much that they wouldn't say anything i mean you never interrupted john arlott you never talked over john arlott it was very strict we talk between overs and that was it in those days john has made it more conversational but i'll say to me of, of the others in that 80s era i i just i didn't I hardly heard it. I mean, I've heard Tony Cozier commentating on me getting a couple of wickets at the Oval. I was surprised. So, of course, TMS was on, of course. So, you know, it's where Christopher cut his teeth. It was where Henry uh, cut his teeth on, on radio. But all I suspect, under pressure, without John Arlott being there, I would, I would imagine, just as it was when when John has died and you've got to, you know, someone else picks up the baton. And that, that's, that's kind of the way the way these programs work isn't it it's got to keep keep going keep evolving 
and, and just just you know moving on in its own its own pace. I don't think you try anything, don't do anything too quickly. As a pretty young bloke at the time, in your case, and, and you know you're helming this coverage that, that Johnston's just done for the last twenty three years, and then it's you with others, obviously experienced men in the box with you. But you know you're the ball by ball guy, you're the cricket correspondent, and all the rest of it. That transition, I guess, is what I'm that that friction point for you. Did you feel as though you were you had that chance to drive it into a new era? Like, is that how it felt at the time, or how did you feel? I think the first, well, the first tour we did, it was a case of just getting getting it done, really. You know, getting getting through because Brian died in January, and I think we were on tour. We were in the West Indies, so probably the end of that month or February, we were actually on, away on the tour, and that would have started. So, you know, everyone was still pretty numb by, you know, by all of that, really. So it was a case of getting through that tour. But I've got to be honest, no. I mean, I've I've, I've never really sat down, and Peter and I would would talk about things a bit about personnel or or, or whatever it may be, but. You know, I, th- I think what I think what has helped move the program along ha- has been that it's on air all day, and so there is more opportunity for for people, to, therefore, to. But well, you're you're on all day. If you're doing all the intervals, and I do most of them, you know that sort of gives the impression, if you like, that you're, as you say, helming the program, whatever you want to say it. But actually, I mean, everyone's doing their bit. You know, and and again, listening back to the Headingley commentary. Because of the way that the, the box is structured, you often don't hear other people either. Um, and so, again, I just love sitting there, the heading of the game, and listening to Simon Mann, for instance, who often, you know, Simon might follow me, and I've done my stint, and I'll get up and go out and get a cup of coffee or something and have a chat with someone downstairs and then look at the clock, oh, I'm on in ten minutes, I better go back upstairs again. And so you miss the other people, uh, and you miss their humour and what they bring to the programme as well, simply because physically you, you you can't be sitting in that box all the time. Often there aren't any chairs in them, for goodness sake. So when you're away especially. So everybody brings their bit. I don't think anybody is more is more important than anybody else. You, you've got to have somebody who I guess who is the presenter of it. But, you know, if I if I fell under a bus tomorrow, then someone else would stand up and they would they'd move it along. And that's that's I think that's the joy of that programme, in that despite there have been a lot of there have been a lot of ruts in the road along the way, a lot of potholes. You know, Fred Truman dying on you know unexpectedly on the day of a one-day international at Headingley of all places, died in the morning, and we're putting together an obituary for one of our friends, one of our proper friends. Fred was a very good friend of mine. We're having to put together an obituary, which we're presenting live in about an hour and a half. We had to do it. You know, those again, they're they're, they're pretty hardcore moments actually. And it's only afterwards you sit there and go, oh my God, Fred's died. You know, it, it's after the programme kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, too many people dying, frankly, and, mo- and moving on. And each time, uh, you know, someone else, someone else will pick up the battle and someone else will take it on. And that's, that's been one of the programme's great strengths. I know exactly how many test matches I've done for TMS because I'm ridiculously proud of having done them. But also because I haven't done that many. So I can keep count. <laughs> Do you know how many test matches you've done? No, I know it's over 300 because when I had done 25 years, so what was that, four years ago, um, they set me up with Michael Parkinson. To, he was, who actually, if you talk about View of the Boundary, he's been a great help to me. I mean, he, Parky was fantastic, listening to interviews. would talk afterwards, giving me tips. To, you know, he, he's been brilliant. So 25 years, you know, four years ago, I'd done, I think it might have been about my 300th test. So add on what we've done since then. So, and the funny thing about 
them, the recall, is that I tend to remember... I, I can remember every game, I think, if I get a bit of a nudge. <laughs> and it's not necessarily the cricket that I remember. It might be something had happened in the build-up or there was an issue about something. And when I go back through, you know, through the, the grey matter, which is, I think, quite full these days of, of, of cricket, but it'll be, it'll be often a, a sort of really trivial little something, because a test match is not just a, a cricket match. A test match is an event, and there's always something around that event that just, I say, there's, there's something that always just triggers, I don't know, a, a, a crazy journey getting there, or mm. I don't know, someone someone falling down the commentary box steps that night, or, or, or whatever it may be, you know, something or, or a cake we were sent that was amazing, or a wind up. There's, there's, there's something there that just triggers off most of those games. There are others I've got no idea what happened. To be um, and, and can you sum up for us what it means to you? John? I know you say that there that we're we all do it together, and it's very true. We're all part of a team, but as Adam just said also, it, in the public consciousness, there have probably been these three eras, Arlott, Johnston, you. Can you sum up what it means to you to be so closely associated with the brand of Test Match Special? It's something that uh, I hope I would never take lightly, um, because it is an honour to follow in the footsteps of people like that. Um, you know, Brian and I did have an amazing relationship it didn't last long enough, unfortunately. It was only three years, but we, we, we were just so similar. And he had a massive influence on me. He never sat me down and said, this is what you do, this is how you do it. But I just know if I hadn't had those three years with Brian, I know I'm not the sort of broadcaster I'd want to be, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the courage to have, to have been it. It would have been very frustrating. And so Brian sort of gave me the wings, if you like, to, to do it in his style. And again, you can't copy anybody, but to have the freedom to do it as he as he did it, and to talk to people, to communicate with the people that you're talking to. I think that's what TMS is just so about. Yes, you have fun with Tuffers. Yes, you pull Michael Vaughan's leg. Yes, you tease Jeffrey or whatever. But actually, you're talking to the, to the, the person at the other end of the radio, and that's, that's what the programme is all about. Um, but, you know, to, to be talked about in those sort of terms is, is amazing. And as I said before, it, it's kind of a bit hard to believe because... I don't know. It is. It is. It is just. It's just a job, really, and it's something that I love doing, and and you know, want want to want to keep on doing. And as long as as long as there's cricket, and I love doing it wherever we go. I look in Australia. We can be a completely different character. You can go on the ABC and Grandstand, and I'm the pom abroad, you know, and I'm not a correspondent anymore. And you can just be a completely innocent pom. I love that. I love that relationship that you have with the listeners like that. It's all about the relationship with the listener, and that is what the key to Test Match Special is all about. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word. Story time. Thank you to Jonathan Agnew for talking to the Calling the Shots podcast that Adam and Dan Norcross did back in the day. Thanks to Dave Collins, our editor, for putting that interview together as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, DC. Uh, it's been really cool going back and listening to the Calling the Shots long-form interviews. When Dan and I were pulling the, the doco together, it was kind of... Uh, foot to the floor stuff to get them out each fortnight but that was the third episode test match special uh, but yeah going back through that reminded me that we've got some fabulous interviews to roll out over the next two months or so on story time so uh, we'll 
keep them coming each weekend. I, I should note that um, you may have noticed we didn't have uh, any real break between our conversation about Nerd Pledge and, and bouncing into the interview. If you're out there and you, and you want to work with us, if you've um, got a brand that you want to promote through the final word, there are plenty of opportunities with us over the summer. So drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com or get us on the Patreon DMs. And that is enough for another weekend. We hope we've been able to accompany you with some relaxing cricketing listening as you've done whatever it is you do on a Saturday or Sunday, or indeed if this is sometime in the future and it's not one of those days, you're allowed to listen to it on those days (laughs) as well. We'll be back with the regular Final Word uh, midweek show. It'll be out this Wednesday. Plenty going on there as ever. Story time into the summer and it won't be long before our daily show gears up when India start playing Australia in the home test matches. Until then, the final word cricket podcast on Bad Producer Productions, the podcast network, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thanks to everybody who's signed up and helped make the show happen. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it